Welcome into another edition of the BrownZone.com Zone Coverage Podcast. Andy Bullbarch with AM 930 WEOL and 100.3 FM. And I'm joined by Scott Petrak, Browns beat reporter with the Chronicle Telegram, the Medina Gazette, and of course, BrownZone.com. Scott, as you may imagine, has been a very, very busy man over the last couple of weeks here, but especially over the last 48 hours. Scott will get into a wide variety of different angles to attack this head coaching search over the next 20 minutes or so here, but have you had a chance to sleep at all these last couple of days? I have, um, but it, it's been restless sleep. Andy, you know, you either are worried about something new happening, um, you don't want to oversleep, you're afraid going to get a text message or you just never know so i felt myself tossing and turning a lot and then checking my phone in the middle of the night and of course everything kind of came to a head yesterday when the reports were released that kevin stefanski was going to be the man and certainly not a surprise because he was very much alive and well in this race based on all the reports that were put out there over the last couple of weeks and this was the guy apparently that paul de podesta wanted last year so scott We'll start right there with the bare bones of this. You know, what do you make of this hire? Not necessarily do you like it or dislike it, because I think that's a difficult question to answer right now. Time will certainly tell here. But, you know, this process went on for just about two weeks. I think maybe a little bit longer than people had anticipated, but... There are a lot of different ways of breaking that down, too, because last year people thought they rushed to make a hire, and then this year people thought they waited too long. It's impossible to please everybody, but that's also a problem I think that they've created by themselves within the confines of that building. But what do you make of this entire process? Yeah, I think you have a good point there, Andy, when you talk about it's impossible to please everybody. That's 100% correct. And also, given the history of the Haslam's. It's really difficult for them to have any trust from the fan base, and that makes all the sense in the world. I mean, they haven't had a hire that's worked, period. Now, maybe they'd, they might argue Paul DePodesta, right, because he's been here four years. He's expected to stay. He's taken on a bigger role in the organization, but we don't know how it's going to turn out for him. Everybody else has been fired, right? Hugh Jackson has stayed the longest at two and a half years, and it was remarkable he made it to two and a half. So I think there's natural skepticism given anything the Haslam's do. And that was, to me, blatantly obvious throughout this coaching search. And when you watch Twitter and you see the reaction to Stefanski and just the process in general. And when you just go to the process, I was fine with it. I understand wanting to be deliberate and disciplined and thorough. That makes sense to me. Now, if you have one candidate that you're in love with, and maybe Jimmy Jones with Mike McCarthy was that candidate. Um, then I understand wanting to get that guy in your building and you don't let him out and you hire him. But that's not how the Browns operate operated this time. I don't think that's how they'll ever operate with Paul D. Bedesta being the guy running the search, right, in charge of the logistics of the search. He's a data guy. He wants as much data as possible. Um, so I think this is how they, they intended the search to play out. They believe they interviewed eight qualified candidates. Um, and, and I think they like how the process played out. Now, if you're anti-Kevin Stefanski, you would argue with that. If you believe they should have tried to keep Mike McCarthy in the building the first day they interviewed him and hired him, I'll listen to that argument because he was my number one candidate. Um, I never got the sense that he was coming here. I think he would prefer Dallas. You know, Dallas is a 
bigger enterprise, right? They have Dak Prescott. I mean, I know the Browns have Baker Mayfield, but Dallas is a bigger operation. Jerry Jones has won before. Um, it's an NFC. I think Mike McCarthy just feels more comfortable there. So if you take him out of the equation and Ron Rivera had already gone to Washington, then I think this is a reasonable group of candidates. You could have added a Jim Caldwell. If you wanted to, you could have added a Jason Garrett late after the parting of the ways in Dallas. Um, but they interviewed eight guys. I think they were eight reasonable candidates. Um, and then it wound up being Kevin Stefanski. And I know the pushback from a lot of fans is Josh McDaniels, and we can get into that. But from a pure process standpoint, I think it was fine. It didn't bother me that it took two weeks, especially when they were the only vacancy left. What's the real hurry to find a, you know, to hurry up and rush to hire your coach? Take your time, do all the interviews you have scheduled, take a day to decide, and that's what they did. So I don't quibble with the process, but we can surely quibble with, if you want, who they should have hired, who they did hire, and why you know, Paul De Podesta, for instance, has as much power as he does. Well, and they made this commitment to take the analytical route a few years back. You had referenced that a couple of moments ago with Paul De Podesta really having the longest-running tenure of anybody in that front office. And this struck me as a way of the Haslam's giving him a little bit more freedom, going with a guy that by all accounts he wanted a year ago. This strikes me as the Haslam's giving Paul D. Podesta the freedom to shoot his own shot, so to speak, because it seemed like they gave John Dorsey that opportunity a year ago. Do you think there's more to it than that, or, or do you think that's somewhat accurate? Well, I, I think it's somewhat accurate. To me, there's two points there. The first is that the Haslam's have been around Paul D. Podesta for four years now. I think he was hired January 5th, 2016. And it was a starter when they hired him, right? He'd spent his whole career in baseball. You know, famously Moneyball, Jonah Hill played him in the movie. Um, so it was a surprise when he came over. And uh, he's gained power within the organization, right? He's been here four years. I think that's natural. Um, but he was part of that changeover when Sashi Brown was going to run things and they were going to go all in on analytics. So the fact that he's been here a long time, the Haslam's have gotten to know him and they've gotten a chance to appreciate just how smart Paul D. Podesta is. And, and I know some fans rage about analytics and they complain about the baseball guy making the decisions. And I haven't spent a ton of time with Paul D. Podesta. You know, I've hand, talked to him, whatever, handful, ten times. I had did a Q&A with him back in the day when he got hired. Um, but I don't think there's any denying or debating just how smart this guy is. And I think the processes from baseball carry over to football. And the need to use data and rely on data and all those things, that seems a no-brainer to me that you would want those incorporated in how you run your organization. Now, that doesn't mean he should be calling plays on third and one, and it doesn't mean, I'm not even sure it means he knows who the right head coach is, but I think he's smart enough to get the right information and talk to the right people. And I think that the bottom line is the Haslam's recognize that and said this guy is a guy that should have influence in the organization and someone who we should listen to. So when you apply that to this particular coaching search, it became, well, Deep Podesta liked Sean McDermott in 2016, we hired Hugh Jackson. Deep Podesta liked Kevin Stefanski in 2019, and we hired Freddie Kitchens. Maybe we should listen more to Paul Deep Podesta. And the only... 
the only the way I see it, the only way that you the Hasms would have deviated from that plan was if they went all in with Josh McDaniels. Because Josh McDaniels, you know, the Patriots offensive coordinator, wasn't going to come in and accept the organizational setup that the Hasms have going right now, which is Coach GM D Podesta all report to the Hasms. And the coach has say in the GM who's yet to be hired. So I don't think Josh McDaniels wanted that setup. I think he wanted more power. I think he wanted two other voices going directly to Jimmy Haslam, and I think the Haslams would have had a choice to make. Yes, we hired Josh McDaniels. He blows it up, and we put we just trust Josh McDaniels is going to be the guy, and we're going to give him a long contract and a ton of money and hope he gets it right. Or we stick with Todd Podesta, who we know, who we trust, and find another coaching candidate, and that winds up being Kevin Stefanski. And, you know, I know that upsets some fans, and I get why it upsets some fans, but to me, it makes sense. It doesn't mean it's right, but it makes sense. The Haslams have met Josh McDaniels before, and they've interviewed him, and they like him, but they've never worked with him on a day-in, day-out basis. And they have done that with Paul Podesta for four years, so it makes sense to me that you would trust him given that choice. And I'm not saying it's an easy choice, but I understand them making that choice, especially when Jimmy Haslam is so focused on this alignment of the organization. Coach, GM, DePodesta, ownership, and how they need to be working in lockstep. And we can get into that a little bit later, too, get in more into that. But if that's your idea and that was your goal going into the coaching search, then it makes sense to follow that path, and that path led you to Kevin Stefanski. And the path or the roller coaster ride, whatever you want to phrase it as over the last couple of weeks here, it's been interesting because there certainly have been a lot of stories and a lot of reports out there about which guys impressed, which guys didn't. You know, it was a seven-hour meeting with Josh McDaniels and Berea on Friday, and when he left, you think to yourself, boy, seven hours, that's probably a good thing, but is it a bad thing that he got on the plane and he flew out? I think a lot of people were very disappointed because a lot of people were looking for somebody with head coaching experience just because it feels like they've tried the other route so many times and it hasn't worked out too well. And I think that's got a lot to do with the public perception of this hire. The fact that it seemed like they wanted somebody in there with this roster with a little bit more experience of dealing with some of these personalities. Do you think there's anything more that feeds in? to the negativity surrounding a lot of this hire, the fact that Stefanski's coming into this thing with no head coaching experience whatsoever, even though he does bring a lot of stability in his own career with 14, 15 years with one organization? Right. Uh, Well, I think that's a big chunk of it, is that he doesn't have the head coaching experience. And the Browns Browns fans have seen Freddie Kitchens fail in that. Mike Patton, Rob Chudzinski, Romeo Cornell. Right, those are all first-time head coaches that came in here and, and failed. So I, I get how that stings, and man, we don't want to go through that again. And that's why, you know, and we've talked about this, Andy. I, given my choice, I would have gone with a guy who's been a successful head coach. And there's a difference, right? Josh McDaniels was less than two and out in Denver. Now, I'm not saying there's no value to being, being been a head coach before. Because there certainly is. And you would assume a guy as smart as Josh McDaniels would have learned from that, especially given the decade that has been removed since the last time he was a head coach when he was like 32 years old. But I like the idea of a successful head coach. And that would have been Mike McCarthy, right? 
Ron Rivera, both guys wind up not here. I think Jim Caldwell would have fit there, and he's the guy I would have interviewed. And the Browns interviewed him last year, so maybe something in that interview turned him off. Maybe they were worried about his health, whatever it is. Um, but I like the idea of that head coach, which successful, with who's won in the past as a head coach. But the fact is, there's not a ton of guys out there like that. And when they pop on the market, they get snapped up pretty quick, like Ron Rivera and Mike McCarthy. Um, now, if Paul DePodesta, just having him kind of eliminated Mike McCarthy, then I don't like that, right? That would scare me, because you have to be open to a guy who's established and not just be looking for the next, you know, the next young thing. The next, you found the next guy. But having said that, I think that's not the only reason fans are ambivalent at best about Kevin Stefanski. They think it's an extra reliance on analytics, and it's a turn back to the Sashi Brown days. And I don't think that's completely accurate, right? I think so much of the Sashi Brown era was the teardown. And I don't think the Browns plan on tearing it down again. I think they believe in their roster. I think they believe it's a playoff-caliber roster, which is why they got rid of Freddie Kitchens after one year and why they didn't think they could live with John Dorsey, that they needed changes, is because they think the time to win is now and you just have to find the right coach and GM combination. So, you know, analytics can be scary to some people. I, to me, it's just having enough, having as much information as possible to help you get to where you need to be and not be ignoring anything out there that can help you win. And if we look at some successful organizations, the Ravens, the Eagles, they all rely, they rely on analytics a lot. And I think fans who just hear it and kind of tone it out and start screaming, that's the wrong approach to have. I think you want as much information as possible. You want as many smart people as possible. Um, but I do think that that's when Browns fans look at this, they think, oh, my gosh, analytics is stepping over the football department. And we'll have to see, right? The Browns have had a failed track record, but – to me, that part doesn't scare me. Um, I also think that there was a lot of support for Josh McDaniels because he's a local guy. And not only did he have some head coaching experience, he spent all that time with the Patriots. And it's hard to ignore that. Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, how is that not going to translate to his new team? And I get that argument. I, I really do. I-, I just think that it came down to Paul DePodesta in alignment versus Josh McDaniels and his resume and has him took, went with the guy that he knew and the setup he feels comfortable with. And it might not work. But I'll tell you what, I'm not sure Josh McDaniels is a slam dunk to work. We talk about his failed two years in Denver. I don't think you can just ignore that. And he also backed out on the Colts two years ago after he agreed to take that job. And that's a big red flag to me. And if I were the Haslams, I would have needed to be convinced that that wasn't a black mark against Josh McDaniel's character. I would have needed a really good explanation for why he told the Colts he would go, they started hiring his assistants, and then he backed out. And I would have needed to be convinced that that wasn't, um, yeah, it, it wasn't a sign of him having bad or weak character. And maybe they weren't able, to, maybe he wasn't able to convince the Haslam's that. And maybe he was, and it just came down to Paul DePodesta or Josh McDaniel's. Um, but to get back to your question, I think it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning. There's so much history of losing with the Haslam's and so much history of bad decisions that fans are just going to look sideways, I believe, at any decision they make. 
And even if they had hired Josh McDaniels, I don't think everyone would have been happy with that. And that, and that's the burden the Hazards are going to have to bear until they finally get a, a hire correct and finally start winning some games. What's fascinating about this stage in the process is that over the last 20 years, it seems like just about every guy they've brought in to take this position has drawn a certain amount of excitement. I mean, you even go back a few years and they brought Hugh Jackson in, he walked into the door, the entire front office, the entire building, gave him a round of applause, seemed like he was the guy the Browns wanted at the time. They got him. We know how it worked out. And even though the process seems like it could be really exhausting for fans, it seems like when the guy they hire comes in, he wins the press conference, and then all of a sudden the excitement is back again. This time feels a little bit different, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I know Kevin Stefanski. I don't, but by all the things that I've heard about him, he's not necessarily the emotional guy that comes in and wins the press conference. He's a lot more even keel. So that's really taken a fascinating turn here as well because whenever the press conference ends up being where they introduce him as the next head coach, you get the feeling that people still aren't going to be too crazy excited about it because he's going to be wildly different as far as his personality goes because, again, he's a lot more even keel, not necessarily as up and down, but that's probably not a bad thing, is it? No, I don't think it is a bad thing, Andy. And you're right. And we talk about winning the press conference. And I get that we're in a 24-7 news cycle. And we have to talk about stuff all the time. And they're not going to play a football game for eight months, right? And they're not going to get to training camp for six and a half months. So you need to fill the void somehow. But the fact is, how he stands in front of his initial press conference is not going to affect what kind of a head coach he is. And if he wins games... Yes, you can get a sense for his intelligence. You can get a sense for how he handles a room. But he doesn't need to be rah, 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 right? Bill Belichick's not that way. And I know Bill Belichick's kind of his own guy. But I don't get that sense from Matt LaFleur, right, who's got the Packers in the NFC Championship game. Um, I'm not sure, you know, I've been around Kyle Shanahan, and I really like Kyle Shanahan, but I'm not sure he comes across as, you know, Mr. Emotional. You know, and, and I think you can contrast it with Joe Judge, who got hired by the Giants last week. Nobody ever heard of him, right? He's just, I mean, he's a special teams coordinator, receivers coach, definitely off the radar. But he comes in, he's all fired up. He talks about punching the other team in the mouth every play or punching them in the nose every play. People in New York go nuts. Well, that's all well and good, and good for them, and I appreciate the excitement. But that doesn't mean he can stand in front of 53 guys every day. Maybe it's a sign that he can, but I'm not sure it translates. It certainly has no bearing on whether or not he can hire the right offensive coordinator, if that coordinator will call the right plays, if he'll know when to challenge on fourth down, if he can handle all the adversity that's going to get thrown to a head coach for the, who's a head coach for the first time. Like, none, I don't, those are two different things, standing in front of a microphone and then being a head coach CEO. So you're right. I, I don't think Kevin Stefanski is going to come in here and wow anybody, right? You see him on the sideline, he's even keel. That's what everybody says about him, which I think is a plus to have in a head coach, someone that that is even keel, doesn't get too emotional, can make good decisions in the heat of the moment. So it, it'll be interesting. And then at some point, I expect the Browns fans' frustration to turn to excitement and anticipation. The fact is everybody loves football. 
Everybody loves their Browns. And this team, at least in my estimation, can go to the playoffs next year. Now, a lot of that depends on Kevin Stefanski and the staff he puts together. But the roster that he's inheriting and whoever the next GM is, right, if it's Andrew Barry, it's a big-time roster. And I don't think they're far away. And I think if they had a better coach in 2019, they could have made a run to the playoffs. So I think once the fervor over the coaching search and the coaching hire dies down, I think fans, now they may be a little hesitant. and They probably won't be all in like they were last year when everybody thought the Browns were you know, going to go to the Super Bowl. But I think that excitement will begin to build again, especially if they buy into the fact that Kevin Stefanski is going to be good for Baker Mayfield. Because the quarterback means so much in this league. Baker took a step back in year two, and Kevin Stefanski brings a pretty good track record of working with quarterbacks and getting the most out of them. Kirk Cousins had his best year under Kevin Stefanski this year. Keith Keenum, when Stefanski was quarterback's coach, had his best year. And if, you can, if that translates to Baker Mayfield, and Baker Mayfield can get back on track, I think he's more talented than Kirk Cousins, then all of a sudden you can start to see how this offense could be where it should have been in 2019. Now, when the sun sets, I'm not necessarily sure this part matters a whole lot, but it is fun to talk about. There are reports out there that, you know, obviously Stefanski was the man, and that's really all that matters at the end of the day. But there's kind of been an order put together as to far as where some of these candidates fell between Sala and, of course, Stefanski and Josh McDaniels. Apparently those are the final three. Some say McDaniels was third on that list. Are you buying that? I am. Um, I was only told of three finalists. I was not able to confirm that Sala finished second. Um, but I, I buy that in terms of if you're not going to blow up your organizational, stand, organizational structure like we talked about, then that probably eliminates McDaniels as a third guy. And then, you get, then you're down to Stefanski versus Sala. And, um, and it's interesting in – that those guys went head-to-head Saturday, right, in the playoffs. We're watching Stefanski's offense for Salah's defense, and the 49ers got the best of the Vikings. And I know some fans are, how can we hire this guy? They only had seven first downs, blah, blah, blah. First of all, you can't make a hire based on one game. I mean, that would be extremely short-sighted. Number two, the Vikings' offensive line could not block the 49ers' defensive line. And I don't blame Kevin Stefanski for that. He tried what he could. He ran screens after screen to try to slow down that pass rush. He tried to run bootlegs, and it wasn't working. I just thought it was a mismatch at the point of attack, and I'm not sure what coordinator would have been able to overcome that. And people talk, oh, he didn't make adjustments. I thought he tried to make adjustments. I thought his hands were tied. Um, And Kirk Cousins is limited from a mobility standpoint. And it's tough to beat that 49ers defense when you have a quarterback with that limitation. Um, So, you know, I I don't think it's fair to point at that. I think it's fine to look at Salah and say, hey, you know, his team did a heck of a job. But Stefanski's resume is better than Salah's. And I hope I'm not butchering his name. I've heard it a hundred times and I keep going back and forth. But um, Stefanski's resume is deeper. It's better. Um, I think there's a chance Salah's a one-year wonder here. Not that the 49ers won't be good again, but it felt like he caught lightning in the, the, a bottle this year with that front four that he has. Um, so I would not have let 
that game influenced my decision, and I think it's a good thing the Browns didn't. Um, but it also shows you, I think Salah blew him away. I know he blew him away in the interview. And because I don't think he was necessarily a huge candidate across the league coming into this offseason interviews, and all of a sudden for him to finish second, I think talks about how he was inside that interview room. He must come out of come across as smart and a leader, and and I believe that. I just think the Browns felt Stefanski was more ready, and that goes back to last year when they interviewed him then, and they sat in a room and they felt like he was ready to be a head coach, and he was a finalist, and he'd only been a play caller for three games at that point. So now he has another year under his belt. Or Paul De Podesta identified a guy that he felt was super smart, had the right background. His dad had been in professional sports or is in professional sports, is an NBA executive, he's a GM. And Kevin Stefanski has shown that he's willing to work, not willing, he can work well with others. He was hired by Brad Childress. He got fired. Leslie Frazier kept him. He got fired. Mike Zimmer kept him and promoted him. So I think that is a good sign for his willingness to collaborate and the fact that he's committed to getting better and he's taken the steady progression of the coaching change chain, and I think that's one of the things the Podesta and the Browns liked about him. Next week, we'll dive into some of the candidates that he probably has in mind to put his coaching staff together, certainly because that's something he's really going to have to attack pretty quickly here. But, Scott, one last question. We'll dive into the GM search now because that's the next step in this process as well. A lot of names are being thrown out there. You referenced a couple earlier. Who do you think some of the leaders in the clubhouse are at this point to be the next GM? I think it's Andrew Barry's job to lose. He's vice president of football operations. I believe that's the title with the Eagles. His first year there, and Browns fans should be familiar with him. He spent three years with the Browns as vice player, vice president of player personnel, from 2016 to 2018. He didn't leave until after the search last year, and reportedly was a big fan of Kevin Stefanski. So that's another reason why it makes sense. And I'll go back to the alignment. Um, Barry is a Harvard guy, like the Podesta. Stefanski is a University of Penn guy, so it would be three Ivy Leaguers. Andrew Barry was part of that one in 31, but he never had final roster say, right? He ne- I don't think he was. Sashi Brown was the guy making the final picks. Andrew Barry was just giving him his input. And at 32, he's an up-and-comer. I like him. He's a guy that another guy that gets along with people. He's well-liked, well-respected inside the Browns building. He doesn't have a huge ego, which I think is something that the Hasms appreciate. Right? We have a lot of big egos that have come through the Browns organization. And Andrew Barry does not have one, in my opinion, from being around him for those three years. So I think it is his job. I think the Hasms like him. I think the Podesta likes him. Um, he might get interest from other teams, which could make his decision more difficult, but it feels like he's the guy, and it makes sense. And I would be excited to see him have control of the roster and see what he does with it. Because again, I'll reference you know people point to one and thirty-one and Deep Podesta was here and Barry were here, but I never felt like they either one of those guys had the loudest voice in that room. Right? It was Sashi Brown, and Sashi Brown had other guys around him, and now it can be Deep Podesta and Andrew Barry, and if. You let Andrew Barry take the analytics information, take his football background. I, I think that could be a combination that works well. And if it's not Barry, 
George Patton, who's been another VP of player personnel slash assistant general manager with the Vikings for a long time, working under Rick Spielman. He and Safanti have been together for, I don't know if it's 12 years, 13 years, a long time. It would be a fit for those guys to work together. Um, the Vikings have built a nice roster. Spielman's one of the best GMs. Uh, Patton's learned from him. So I think either one of those guys makes sense. Um, Ed Dodds from the Colts, the Browns, he requested an interview with him, and he turned it down. That's because he was more of a Salah guy, Robert Salah. He was getting, you know, Salah had his candidate. It would have, he would have been one of the choices. So it just makes sense. He's not ready to move from Indianapolis. He's probably not the perfect fit with Stefanski, and that's what the Browns are looking for. So if it's not Barry or Patton, I'd be stunned. Um, and I think Barry is certainly the favorite. Hey, Andy, I got. I want to throw one more thing before you wrap it. Um, you know, just I, you spent all this time on Twitter and watching reaction to the hire and stuff. And, you know, there's rumblings and reports out there that, that the Browns want the coach to talk to the analytics department about the game plan and have them be involved and have a guy who is in communication with Kevin Stefanski during the game, whether it's on the sideline or from the booth, an analytics guy advising Stefanski during the game. And I know people have a negative reaction to that. And I just wanted to say that I understand where that comes from, but John Harbaugh of the Ravens has that guy in his ear. Doug Peterson from the Eagles, I believe, has that guy in his ear. And it's not, and they use it for, okay, it's fourth and two from the 45. Are we going to go for it? And the coach makes the final decision, but you spend the week talking about the plan. Right? Is this a week where we're going to be super aggressive and go for it? Is this a week where we think we can win a game 17 to 14? So that shapes decisions. And if you have a comprehensive approach and a plan that, okay, we meet with the analytics guys at this day of the week and we talk about overall strategy. And then we talk about, hey, the numbers show that Baker is best when we go with two tight ends and one running back and two receivers. He just seems to throw better from that personnel package. All that information can be useful to a coach. And it's just like tendencies, right? Coaches spend their lives looking for tendencies in themselves and opponents. And this just I think makes it easier to identify. You know, it, it puts numbers behind it. And then you add in the do we go for it on fourth and one? When do we go for it? When do we go for two point conversion instead of kicking the extra point? All those things, those are analytics based decisions and I don't think anyone should argue with that, right? To me, that's when it makes sense to use math. It makes sense when you look at the numbers and, okay, if you go for it here on fourth and one, your success rate is 75%, and they've crunched all those numbers. It's not a thing where you're standing on the sideline and you're trying to process it. They already know, and they're just informing the head coach. So I don't think that should be any kind of a red flag for fans. I think that's the way the NFL is going the problem is you have to have a coach who's willing to accept that and smart enough to incorporate that. And I think those were problems last year. I think the analytics department, first of all, clashed with John Dorsey's football department. And second of all, I never got the sense, and I was told that Freddie Kitchens had a hard time incorporating that advice into his game plan. And it got in his head, and it messed him up, and that was part of the struggles with the offense. Well, that shouldn't be a problem. Kevin Stefanski knows what he's getting into. 
he embraces that. And I think fans should take a step back from being appalled at that and look around the league and go, okay, we've seen examples where people, teams have a lot of success, and that is the way the league is going. And you have one of the best in Paul D. Podesta, assuming the baseball experience translates to football. And it's not apples to apples, but I certainly think it can be useful in every sport. Yes, it certainly can. Analytics are a beautiful thing when they're applied correctly and they're used correctly and they're processed correctly. I don't think anybody would argue that at all. Scott, as always, a pleasure. There's certainly going to be a lot to talk about over the next seven or eight days, so we'll definitely get down to business and do this again next week. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Andy. Thank you, Scott. Again, that's Scott Petrek, Browns beat reporter with the Chronicle Telegram, the Medina Gazette, and of course, brownzone.com. That'll wrap things up on this edition of the brownzone.com zone coverage podcast. For Scott Petrek, this is Andy Bolbart saying thank you again for listening, and we'll talk to all of you again next week.